Please be seated. Continue to worship God in prayer with me. Holy God, we are in awe and grateful for the gift of your presence. That through your spirit, we know that you are here with us and that you give us a glimpse of your glory and your goodness. And we recognize our, our deep need for your love and your mercy and your grace in our lives. That goodness that is represented through the sacrifice of Jesus who was willing to give his life so that we could have a relationship with you, so that we could be forgiven for all of our mistakes and our faults and our sins, so that we could find healing and renewal each morning, each day that we start new with you, with the hope that resurrection is true for us, even as it was true for Jesus all those years ago. God, as you are here with us, would you speak to us through the voice of your spirit? Would you speak to us through your word? Would you call us again on journey with Jesus? As little kids who trust in total dependence on their parents, would you help us to trust in you as a loving and a good father, even when the words that you have for us sometimes are challenging and maybe even a little bit scary? Give us the courage to trust in you with our whole lives and to be on journey with Jesus as his true disciples. In whose name we pray, amen. My name is Kurt, and I'm one of the pastors here. A special welcome to you. If you're visiting with us this morning, we'd encourage you not to run off too quickly after the service is over. We'd love to have a chance to greet you and uh, offer you some free espresso coffee at our Mission Mocha. As we have some gift cards that we can give you, and we'd love to just find out about who you are and what brings you out to church this morning. We are uh, in the kind of the end phase of a series that we're calling How Goes Your Walk, where we've been walking through the gospel of Mark, and and our goal has been to journey with Jesus through these stories of Jesus and his disciples in this season leading up to Easter, where we recognize that the journey that Jesus invited his disciples on ended up with this journey to the cross, that unexpectedly Death was on the horizon, but even more unexpectedly was the power of God at work to bring Jesus back to life, and that on Easter Sunday, which is approaching quickly, we get to celebrate the fact that death does not have the last word in life, but God, through his kingdom, is at work in our lives, and we too can experience his deliverance and his wholeness, even as we await that final day of history, when we know that we too will be like Jesus, that we too will be raised, that Death will not be able to hold us. As we've been going through this series, we've been asking this question, how goes your walk? How goes your walk with Jesus? If discipleship to Jesus is uh, being a follower of Christ, then it means like Jesus and his original disciples, he was their teacher, he was their rabbi, and they, they followed him on the journey of life, and they learned from his teaching. They watched his example. He sent them out to do the things that he was doing, so they learned by practical training and experience. And as we are called to be on that same journey as Jesus' disciples, it's always good to come back and ask the question, how goes your walk with Jesus? How are you feeling in your discipleship to him as your teacher, and more than that, as your Lord and your Savior, as your master? If you were with us last week, we, we asked the question, are you hungry? If you think about uh, hunger in a, in a spiritual sense, hunger is a kind of pain, Right? But it reminds our bodies that it's time to eat, that we need to fuel ourselves so that we can continue living physically. And and we learned that Jesus is saying that spiritually it's not that much different. 
Uh, spiritual hunger is, is, a, is a feeling of, of an absence, a feeling of need. It's a desire for something more that maybe we can't immediately name, but we recognize that, that Jesus comes saying that the kingdom of God has spiritual food that we can feed on, that we can fill our spirits with. And if we're not feeding on, on the spirit of God in our lives, then perhaps we're, we're going to other places to try and feed our souls that ultimately leave us dissatisfied and unhappy and unfulfilled. Are you hungry for the kingdom of God in your life? Are you hungry for his deliverance, for his healing work going on in your soul? Are you hungry for the wholeness that can only come from the creator of the universe who designed you and made you the way that you are intended to be? And what have you been feeding your spirit on if if, if not that? We talked about how religion itself, for religion's sake, doesn't cut it. Coming to church every Sunday on Sunday morning and sitting in a pew and singing some great songs, but then going out and living your life the same way doesn't represent the true transformation that is available through the Spirit of God in our lives. In fact, religious practices are meant to lead us into a closer relationship with God. But if, if we hold up our practices above our, of God himself, they can actually get in the way of the very relationship they're intended to lead us to. So this week, we're going to be continuing as we go on this journey with Jesus and his disciples to to maybe even asking that question at a little bit deeper level. If you are hungry for God, if you want more of God's power and his wholeness at work in your life, what are you willing to sacrifice in order to get it? Are you willing to sacrifice your own traditions and your own habits and behaviors and practices, maybe even the very lifestyle that you've become accustomed to and that you're comfortable with and that, and that maybe you actually feel kind of good about? If so, how, how, do you, how do we begin to do that? Do we have to you know, sell all, all our possessions and move to Africa to become a, a missionary without any money and relying on support from other people? Well, maybe. But I don't think that's what all of us are called to do. That might be the call for some people in their life. But the real question is, what is God calling you to do and what are you willing to let go of in order to pursue that call? And maybe for you, that first step is just a very simple baby step of of letting go of something very simple as a demonstration of your willingness to live in obedience to the Spirit of God in your life. Surprisingly, what we're going to find out this morning is that Jesus is teaching his disciples that it's when we learn to let go of our own need to direct and control our lives that we discover a God who is able to direct our lives towards true fulfillment in ways that we never could have asked for or imagined. We also discover that as we let go of our own need to direct and control our lives, what we're really doing is we're also letting go of the fear and the anxiety that comes from the fact that we really know deep down that we don't have the power to, to manage our own lives well. Now, it's not always easy, but we can trust that God always leads us towards what's best in our lives. What we begin to see in the story of Mark as we walk with Jesus on the way is that Jesus' pathway is not always a stairway to heaven where we build ourselves to be better and better Christians and somehow earn our way to heaven one day. But we see that there's a transition in the story today where Jesus turns and walks his disciples and they begin to discover that Jesus is leading them to the cross. And that the journey to relationship with God is a journey of suffering and death. And that's not an easy pill to swallow for his disciples. I invite you to turn with the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be picking it up in the end of chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verse 27. 
Jesus in the story feeds the 4,000 and then he heals a blind man and the, the Pharisees and the religious, professional religious people, the perps, are continuing to criticize him and they're beginning to uh, plot to figure out how to, to kill him. And in verse 27 of chapter 8, it says that Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? Because we see we've been talking about this throughout the, the gospel at this point. There's always this mystery, this question of who is this Jesus? Who, who is he and, and, and what does he represent? And, and this, this question of his identity, what does it mean that the Son of Man has come and that he's ushering in the kingdom of God? Is he a prophet? Is he uh, Elijah returned? Is he the reincarnation of John the Baptist? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Again, there's this kind of secret that's kept for the inner circle that the other people aren't supposed to know yet because God's timing hasn't come to reveal the truth about who Jesus is to the world at large. But then he goes on in verse 31, he says, And he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Get this, Peter's taking Jesus aside, right? And he's going to school Jesus. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. Ouch. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory and with the holy angels. And then verse 1 of chapter 9, and he said to them, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come in power. And most scholars suggest that that sentence is his prediction of the resurrection after his sacrificial death. So what's going on here in the story? What, what, are we, what are we supposed to be hearing and taking away? If we're entering into the story, as we've been inviting you to do, as one of his disciples, and, and, and trying to be a fly on the wall as, as Jesus is walking and talking and teaching and, and being with his disciples, we have to understand that, that Jesus is no longer on the go, moving from town to town and back and forth across the Sea of Galilee, doing all of this active ministry. He has now turned and set his sights on Jerusalem. There's a shift in the story that is happening in this scene where where he, he is now on the way to his true and ultimate destination. They're on the way to Jerusalem, to the holy city, which only Jesus knows is a journey to the cross. It's interesting that the journey begins in Caesarea Philippi, which scholars suggest that Herod the Great, who was a king in Israel, had had made a grand marble temple to revere the Roman emperor. And then his son, Herod Philip, 
expanded the city and renamed it in honor of Caesar. So it became Caesarea Philippi. I guess Philip had to get his name in there too, right? And so Jesus' journey to the cross begins in a pagan outpost at the northernmost part of Israel. It was the farthest away from Jerusalem that you could be and still be within Israel. And Jesus will begin this long push from there all the way to the heart of of Israel, to Jerusalem, to the holy city itself. And even as he does, there continues to be this ongoing mystery of of who he is. And he he asks his disciples to to kind of do a, a, how am I polling in the crowd? Who do people say that I am? What What are the results that are coming in? And the disciples report his favorable poll ratings. Most people like him. They think he's good. They uh, suggest that maybe he's, you know, Elijah returned or like John the Baptist, but he's definitely a prophet, which means that they, they definitely believe that he is a man sent from God. He has a message from God for the people. At minimum, they're saying he, he's, he's a messenger from God. And now we can affirm that this is true, right? People are, are, are accurately identifying that Jesus is a prophetic figure come from God to deliver a message to God's people. But we also know in hindsight, right, that Jesus is so much more than just a prophet in a long line of messengers that God has sent to his people. And so, so Jesus wants to take it one step further. He says, okay, well, that sounds good, but who do you say that I am? So far, the disciples have only called him teacher or rabbi. They've they've followed him as someone who they think is worthy of of living an example and learning from. But they've even questioned over and over again, right? Who, Who is this guy? Peter moves to the head of the class by giving the only answer that seems to make sense given all the things that they've witnessed and experienced, right? He says in faith, you're the Messiah, It's interesting that scholars suggest that Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, occurs at the very center of the gospel story. It effectively serves as a hinge between what was and what is to come, between the first half of the story and the second half of the story. Uh, The first half of the story, we see Jesus burst on the scene and his his amazing power and spiritual authority is evident over over the wind and the waves and the demons and and he can even heal diseases. And in the second half, what we're going to see is his weakness displayed where he becomes more and more rejected, more and more ineffective until ultimately the very power that could have saved himself, he relinquishes through death on a cross. If you think about it, Peter's confession is a pretty big leap of faith, isn't it? Considering the expectations that the Israelites had of Messiah in that day. I mean, think about what Jesus is doing. Yes, he's got all these amazing kind of spiritual powers that he's demonstrating, but the Messiah was supposed to overthrow the oppression rule of the Roman Empire. He was supposed to come as a, as a military conquering king that was going to return the rule of the entire world to the people of Israel. And Jesus isn't even coming close to anything like that. So for Peter to take that leap of faith and say, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're the one that God has promised, obviously is not based on any circumstantial evidence of the kinds of things that the Israelites expected the Messiah to do. Jesus has not delivered any of the traditional promises, yet Peter's making a statement of faith. Even though he can't see it, he believes it. Now, we have to say, this isn't a blind faith because it's based on who he has seen Jesus to be, right? 
So the, the, faith of sta- the, the statement of faith isn't based on the external evidence of, of the messianic rule of God. It's on the character and the nature of who Jesus is as he's learned about who he has come to be. We're reminded of Hebrews 11 when we're, it says, Faith is the confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. The question shifts from who is Jesus to what has God sent Jesus to do? Over and over again, Jesus will try to bring his disciples to a new definition of what being the Messiah is really all about by explaining that the Messiah needs to suffer and ultimately die. It says he speaks about his suffering and his death plainly to them, right? He used to speak in riddles and in puzzles and in parables, but now he's like, okay, you guys got to be ready for this. We're, We're turning to Jerusalem now, and you need to know that when we get there, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And that's a part of God's plan. That's that's why I came. That's a part of what it means to be the Messiah. And Peter goes, heck no, no way. Right? If you're the Messiah, you're God's champion. You're God's winner. You came to conquer the world. You can't suffer and die. Far be it for me to even let you turn towards Jerusalem. Because he doesn't get it. He doesn't understand. Of course, nobody does. Can we fault them for that? Would we have known any different in that same situation? Probably not. But Jesus turns. We assume he turned his back on Peter to the other disciples. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Right? Because, because Satan represents the great adversary. That's what the word Satan means, right? It means the adversary, the one who is against the rule and the reign of God in the world. It's the one who, who is always against what God is trying to accomplish. And it's the one that's hoping to see God's rule and reign undone in your life and in my life as well. And Jesus says in many other places, if you're not with him, you're against him. Maybe not intentionally, but maybe by default. You see, the, Jesus begins to spell out the fine print as well of the requirements of what it means to be his disciples. The cross isn't only a means of redemption, but it's also a way of life that his disciples must follow and live into. They too may face suffering and death as a result of identifying themselves with Jesus. And so we come to a crossroads in the story. We come to a crossroads in people's understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do and where he's going. And he's telling his disciples very plainly, this isn't going to end well. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be pretty. And you're going to be tempted to run away. It's a a shift from, from Galilee to Jerusalem. It's a shift from power to weakness. It's a shift from acceptance and and accolades to abandonment and betrayal. It's a shift from crowds to crucifixion. Who's in for the journey? See, we come to a crossroads in our own discipleship with Jesus at this very point as well. And we have to recognize that the challenge to Jesus' disciples in that day is the same challenge that we face when we come to Jesus as his disciples today. Many people have been willing to accept Jesus and believe Jesus because of the amazing things that he's been able to do for them, right? The real question, though, is whether these will continue to follow him as disciples when they also begin to realize that there's a cost that's going to be required of them. When Peter begins to realize that what Jesus is saying, he reacts extremely negatively and says, no, that's not what I want for you, Jesus. 
That's not what I want for us. That's not what I signed up for. I signed up for success, for rule, for popularity, for gain, to to see God's kingdom take over. There's no way you can be saying you're going to suffer and die. That's not what winning looks like. And so Peter quickly goes from the brightest student in the class with the A-plus answer to the class dunce, right? (laughs) If you're not for God, Jesus is saying, then you're against him. And so Jesus takes this as another teachable moment, right? He turns to the crowds, the text says, and he begins to present the crowds of followers with three instructions or three demands of, if you want to go on from this point to continue to follow me, if you want to truly be my disciple, there's some things you got to sign up for. Number one, you have to deny yourself. Number two, you have to carry a cross. And number three, you have to follow me to where I'm going. If you think about this picture that Jesus is painting, it would be kind of an interesting picture if we were to to paint it out, right? I mean, here you have Jesus on his journey to the holy city, Jerusalem, and and let's say you have hundreds or even thousands of his followers all carrying crosses behind him. Scholars suggest that in the Roman Empire, they, they, they put the cross beam on the shoulders, and they would carry the cross beam to the place of execution, and they would attach the cross beam to the, the execution stake, to the upright beam. Can you imagine this parade of thousands of people carrying cross beams on their way to Jerusalem? What would be the message? What would people see? What would people understand? And are we willing to get into that kind of a parade, to identify with Jesus at that level? Are we willing to walk through life carrying a symbol of self-denial and self-sacrifice and and self-abasement for the sake of the kingdom of God, for something greater than, than our own wants and our own needs and our own desires? I can honestly tell you that I struggle with that every day. First of all, scholars suggest we should talk about what cross-bearing is not. What is Jesus not saying? Jesus is not asking for minor adjustments or simple tweaks to our lifestyle. He's not inviting his disciples to try on a cross for size and see how it fits. Is it comfortable? Would you like me to adjust it a little bit? Do you need a little padding there on that shoulder where it's hurting a little bit? He's not asking volunteers to carry a cross for extra credit. He's indicating that those who follow him must be willing to go all in with him in the same way that he has come to go all in with us. The cross is not a fashion accessory that we wear on display. It's not a sanctuary decoration that we idolize in church on Sunday morning. It's not a physical ailment that we endure or a recurring family problem that we suffer through. It's not, uh, it does not mean to bear patiently with the aches and pains of life as our cross to bear. Carrying a cross represents the willing submission to God's reign in each one of our lives. And as we've been saying over and over again, it begins in the center of the human heart. It's a willingness to lay everything on the line for the sake of something that is a promise of more than we could ever ask or imagine. For the sake of God's will for my life and for his kingdom to be at work in and through me. Now this can often be, mean putting ourselves in complete opposition to a world around us that, that wants nothing to do with God. That looks at the cross of Christ as complete foolishness and looks at Christianity as the stupidest thing they've ever heard of. Commentator David Garland said, Jesus doesn't call us to wave the cross, (laughs) but to carry it. Jesus doesn't call us to wave the cross, but to carry it. So what is cross-bearing? 
What does it mean to deny self? The daily submission of my will to the will of someone who has more control or say in my life. The will, submitting my will to the will of the Father in heaven, just like Jesus did in his relationship with God. Again, Garland says, those who deny themselves say no to the I that would enslave them and say yes to the God who can lead them to true life. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm assuming each of us knows best this morning what are those things that, that we need to say yes to in our lives to allow God's rule and reign to come in? What are those things that we need to say no to? What is it for you this morning? Where is it that you are denying God's rule in your life? Where you're not willing to, to carry the cross and to deny your own will in order to allow the power of God to be at work in some new way? See, to deny ourselves and carry a cross is ultimately the way of following Jesus. That's what being a disciple of Jesus is all about. And if we're not willing to carry his cross, if we're not willing to carry our cross, then we can't really follow him. If we think about it, Mark's first readers were literally facing death and persecution. And so this would come, again, as an encouragement to them, as a word of hope, as a word of good news, that that in the same way that Jesus died and suffered, and your suffering has meaning and purpose and value in the kingdom of God. You don't need to be afraid of your suffering. You don't need to be afraid of the persecution. You don't need to be afraid even of dying yourself, because resurrection is on the other side, and we can have hope in that The reality, Jesus said, is that in trying to ensure our own security and our own advancement in this life only leads to something far more valuable being lost, our very soul. We can can pursue all the good things in life and only come to the end and realize that we've lost our very selves. It does a person no good, Jesus says, to gain the whole world and in the end lose themselves, to be lost to God, to be lost to your maker and your creator, to lose the very purpose for why you were created. We become enslaved to the very things that we hope will bring us fulfillment. And yet this challenge that Jesus gives us also comes with a promise. There will be a resurrection. And the resurrection is what removes the sting of the humiliation of the cross. It promises a reversal of fortune in a completely unexpected way. This is the good news message that Jesus wanted his disciples to be prepared to understand and to receive. Yes, there is a challenge. Yes, it can be hard. Yes, there might be suffering and even death involved, but this is the way God has chosen to bring in his power and to usher his spirit into the world. And if you get on path with Jesus, you will discover that power at work in your own life. You will discover the deliverance and the healing and the wholeness that comes in no other way but by being willing to allow the will of God to be the will that rules your life and that rules your heart. You see, the cross and the resurrection will transform the very meaning of power and glory in this world. It will become an upside-down understanding, a counterintuitive approach to what it means to find true meaning and satisfaction in life. For each of us, then, this means that we discover this power at work in our lives in the same way, by submitting ourselves to the will of God, by denying self, taking up our cross, Jesus said, on Sunday mornings, uh, Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, no, daily, right? Daily, take up your cross daily. This is, this is, a, day, this is a lifestyle that he's inviting us to experience. It's a way of living that leads us in a totally different direction than the world would have us go. 
See, in Jesus, God reveals that the path to life is the opposite of what we would normally be tempted to think. Now, I have to confess again this morning that too often I'm like Peter. I don't know about you, but, but I'm, I'm willing to stand up on Sunday morning and preach and testify that Jesus is the Messiah. I'm willing to try and convince you to believe that too. But when push comes to shove in my daily walk, when it comes to whose will is going to win out in a decision that I'm making, I often balk and I say, heck no, Jesus, that sounds too painful. I don't want to go there with you. And so even as a pastor, sometimes I have to be willing to hear the rebuke of Jesus, which is not a a hateful, punishing rebuke. It's a loving challenge to to me as as God's son to say, get behind me, Satan. That's not not my way. And that's not the way that's going to lead to life. And so in some ways, every day is a conversion opportunity for us to resubmit our lives to the reign and the will of God in us. How about you this morning? If you're hungry for God's kingdom to be at work in your life, what are you willing to sacrifice in order to find it? Are you willing to to carry a cross as Jesus' disciple and allow the will and the reign of God to be what holds sway within your own heart, in your own decision-making, in your own life? Or is it too easy to come and, and sing praises to God on Sunday morning, but then take the reins back throughout the week? I don't know about you, but I like to drive. I'm not a good passenger. Are you willing to sacrifice your own traditions, your habits, your practices in life, your own current lifestyle in order to discover something that maybe God has in store for you that you never realize? See, ultimately, it's not about our behavior. It's all about what goes on in our hearts. You realize that Jesus didn't want to die, right? We're, we're approaching Holy Week, and we're going to be able to, to, to walk with him through the triumphal entry. And on Monday, Thursday night, we're going to be able to, to, to sit with him at his Last Supper and hear the story about he, how he wanders into the garden at night to pray. And it says he sweat blood, praying, dear God, please let this cup pass from me. Jesus didn't want to die. He didn't want to suffer. It wasn't his will. But what was the following prayer he prayed, Right? Not my will, but yours be done. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the crux. That's a pun. That is the crux of discipleship. That is the cross of discipleship. At any given moment of any given day in your life, are you, am I, willing to pray, not my will, but yours be done? I hope and pray that we can have the courage and the spiritual power from God alone to be able to follow Jesus' example and pray that prayer. Because when we pray, not my will, your be done, we're taking up our cross, we're denying ourselves, and we're letting him be the king of our lives. Let's pray. Holy God, We do like the things that Jesus provides for us and the things that he does for us. And we say thank you for the the many blessings that you continue to pour out through your son, Jesus. And yet this morning, Lord, we have to confess that we do often shrink back from the challenge to give up our own selves, to deny our own will in favor of your will in our lives. Help us this morning to to understand what it means to, to carry a cross with Jesus. 
Help us to be able to pray in every moment of the day, not my will, but yours be done. And when we do, God, would you reveal your will to us? Help us to know what your desire is for each one of us so that we can respond in obedience and we too can discover your greater purpose and mission for why you have formed us and called us as your own. And we will praise you and trust in the power of your resurrection at work in our lives. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen.